This is Ron Stockton. Jimmy Carter has reached the end of his life. In 98, he left the hospital to spend the remaining days of life at home. It was the kind of finale we would expect. Before I tell you about the time I met Carter, I want to tell you about the first time I ever heard of him. In fact, it was the day that the rest of the country first heard of him. It was January 12, 1971, the day he was sworn in as governor of Georgia. This charming man with a very pleasant Georgia accent told us that the Old South was gone and the New South was on the way. We knew what that meant. Georgia had not been Mississippi, but it was a place that gave us cold chills where racist history was concerned. Georgia was the home of Lester Maddox, who became nationally famous for resisting integration. Maddox gave every customer in his restaurant, uh, every white customer that is, an axe handle that they could use as they saw fit if a black customer tried to enter the restaurant. The law said no segregation, but it said nothing about axe handles. And Lester actually got elected governor of Georgia. Moreover, he was Jimmy's lieutenant governor, elected separately from Carter, I should add. <clears throat> but here was Jimmy Carter thumbing his nose, politically speaking, at Georgia's past, and, to be honest, at its present. He told us in eight minutes that every person in Georgia, including black people, deserved fair treatment and full access to opportunities and equal justice. To say that we were stunned would be an understatement. Carter knew from the beginning what his goal was. <clears throat> Atlanta is a conference center, and he made a point of personally welcoming every single conference that took place in the city. He would appear at the conference, say how much he appreciated the organization, tell them that they were now in a new Georgia, and make sure that every person got a souvenir peanut from his farm. By the end of four years, there were hundreds of thousands of prominent people across the country, the kinds of people who attended conventions, who knew the name Jimmy Carter, the peanut farmer, and thought he was a unique person, which he was. When Carter ran for the presidential nomination, he was running against Stuart Udall, one of the finest members of Congress. I was sorely tempted to vote for Udall, but stuck with Carter. I think I was pulled to Carter by the hope that he could do more about racial issues than others could. I should note that my wife voted for Udall. We didn't fight over that because I liked him a lot. He would have been a superb president. When the 1976 presidential race occurred, it was in the aftermath of Watergate. Gerald Ford was a good person who came from behind and almost won that race. But Carter had definite advantages. He reassured the public that I will never lie to you. He also emphasized his personal faith. He was an evangelical Christian and made reference to his personal faith in Jesus Christ. People may not remember, but Carter carried the evangelical vote that year. It was not long before the Republicans recruited super church pastor Jerry Falwell to form an organization called Moral Majority. They decided that they could draw religious evangelicals and traditional Catholics away from their democratic roots by accusing Carter of favoring homosexuality and abortion. They also began to play the race card by using code words about crime in the streets, an old George Wallace strategy. I might note at this point that Frank Wayman and I wrote a book and an academic article predicting that the Republicans could split the Democratic coalition by focusing on exactly those issues. There are times when you wish you were wrong, but we were not. 
Carter is seen as a failure as president, but as the most successful ex-president in history. Who could deny that second part? But the first part is definitely wrong. I think in 50 years he will be seen as a very successful president, even though Reagan smashed him in 1980. Carter was well ahead of his time. One of his first acts in office was to pardon those young men who had fled to Canada to avoid the draft. He created the Department of Energy and the Department of Education and expanded national parks, especially in Alaska. He appointed women and African Americans in unprecedented numbers and learned Spanish. He and Rosalind read the Bible every night in Spanish, and when he visited Cuba after he left office, he delivered a televised speech in Spanish. Let's contrast that with George W. Bush, noting with contempt that his opponent, John Kerry, spoke French as if that would disqualify him from the presidency. But Carter definitely had a bad time in office. He inherited the double whammy of unemployment and inflation. We call it stagflation as a result of the Arab boycott, started before he left office. He was also confronted by a militant Ayatollah in Tehran, who responded to his offers of peaceful relations, his, later is re, his letter is reproduced in his memoir, by capturing the American embassy and holding our personnel hostage for 444 days. Carter's bold effort at a rescue, which I thought was a mistake from the beginning, failed, making him look inept, which he was not. Those hostages were not released until Ronald Reagan was actually holding his hand up and taking the oath of office. Then they crossed out of Iranian airspace. It was obvious the Ayatollah preferred Reagan over Carter, and apparently he was given reason for this preference based on communications from people connected to the Reagan campaign. But that's a different story. And when Russia sent its army into Afghanistan, Carter decided to boycott the Olympics, which were to be held in Moscow. I supported that move. I thought it was a bit weak, but something had to be done, and this was short of overt military action. The military action came later, under Reagan, but I suspect you know something about our Afghan involvement. In a different part of the world, Carter negotiated with the president of Panama, Omar Torrios, to turn the canal over to its owners. This provoked an outraged reaction from Republican opposition, who apparently preferred the military confrontation that Torrios had promised if we held on. When Torrios died in, a, in 1981 in a mysterious plane crash, we all wondered. Carter's biggest success, however, produced yet another enraged reaction. It was the Camp David Agreement between Egypt and Israel. Anwar Sadat had a remarkable strategy of confronting the militant Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin with an offer he could not refuse, the offer of complete peace between the two states. Sadat went to Jerusalem in a dramatic charm offensive that left Begin struggling to respond. His offer was simple, the same one that Assad of Syria later offered, complete peace for complete withdrawal. Carter saw that as a chance. He invited both men to Camp David for personal negotiations. There is so much written on this that I'm not going to say much more, but the, memories, the memoirs were incredible. I will only report two anecdotes. In one, Sadat was resisting a concession that was necessary for success. Carter said to him, Anwar, if you refuse this, it will kill these talks. 
Not only will our political relationship be over, but our personal friendship will be over. When Sadat told his aides he was accepting the concession, he told them, Jimmy needs this, and I'm going to give it to him. I'm using uh, Sadat's pronunciation of Jimmy, which he always said as Jimmy. And many resigned at what they saw as a sellout, and Sadat was assassinated soon after. In another story, when Zbigniew Brzezinski, Carter's national security advisor, asked Begin to play chess with him, they were both from Poland. Begin got a pained look on his face and said, I have not played chess since I left Poland. That's my bad in, impression of, of Begin's uh, accent. What a burden to carry throughout your life. But when Zbigniew uh, told Mrs. Begin how sad he was, that they were not able to play chess, Mrs. Begin said, Menachem plays chess almost every day. What a scoundrel Begin was. People forget that those agreements had two components. One was that Israel would pull completely out of the Sinai, which they did, even dismantling a massive Jewish settlement, Yamit, that was slated to become the third largest Israeli city. The second component was that they would negotiate a settlement with the Palestinians. This was where the betrayal occurred. As soon as Begin returned to Israel, he set up additional settlements in the occupied territories. When the U.S. objected, the Israelis said that the agreement specified withdrawal from territories occupied in 1967. Begin said when Israel withdrew from Sinai, they fulfilled those requirements. And here we are, 45 or so years later, with almost daily killings in that conflict. Begin and Sadat got the Nobel Peace Prize in 1978 for the Camp David Agreements, but Carter was slighted. He had to wait 24 years until 2002 for his Nobel Prize for his post-presidential activities. Domestically, this agreement also cost Carter big time. Right-wing Jewish nationalists following Begin's lead turned on Carter. Jewish voters had mostly been Democrats until that time, as they are today. Those who were Republicans were fiscal conservatives, not hardcore Zionists. In those days, Likudist extremism was not a partisan issue as it is today. But Republican Jews quickly became rabid supporters of Likud. As someone said at the time, APAC, the pro-Israeli lobby organization, is not an Israeli lobby. It is a Likud lobby. Even today, Jewish Republicans are extremely right-wing on a host of issues, Israel being one. There is an irony in this that the biggest breakthrough for peace in Israel's history became the cause of extreme hostility to its American sponsor. One Israeli observer said that considering the number of Israelis who are alive today who would have been dead had Carter not pulled off this agreement, every time he comes to Israel, the whole cabinet should meet him at the airport and give him an honor guard. Well, that was not the way Begin and Shamir and Netanyahu saw it. After he left office, Carter became a dynamo of achievement. His Carter Center facilitated over 100 contested elections. His work with Habitat for Humanity, actually carrying boards and pounding nails as he built houses even into his 90s, inspired people across the nation. And books poured out of his keyboard. He has around 30, but I'm only going to mention a couple. One was The Blood of Abraham, a discussion of the Middle East. Carter was a passionate Christian who was determined to bring peace to the region. This book reflected that effort. 
His other book on this topic was called Palestine, Peace or Apartheid. This produced a venomous response because he used the word apartheid. I have a podcast on that word as it applies to Israel, so I will not repeat those issues here. But he definitely backed down on that word, even though he was right. I really like Carter's book about his mother, but his book I liked the most was An Hour Before Daylight, his memoir of growing up in racist Georgia. If you can get the spoken version read by Carter himself, you will be glad you did. It sounds as if your grandfather is saying, okay, you kids, sit on the floor here while I tell you some stories. For my money, it is one of the best books on race in America ever written, especially with the white experience with racism. Uh, Harry Balafonte's memoir, My Song, is a superb perspective of racism from the other side. I'm not going to go deep into Carter's book, but there's one story that's hard to forget. He tells us of his friend with whom he grew up, a black friend. They were so close that if Jimmy did not come home at night, his mother, Miss Lillian, knew he was spending the night with his friend. There was always an extra plate for Jimmy. The reason that this story is so significant is what happened when the two boys got to be teenagers. They were walking across the field when they came to a gate in the fence. His friend reached out and opened the gate, then stepped back and said for the first time, after you, Mr. Jimmy. Suddenly the racial power structure had clicked in. Carter said his friend had never used that address before, but he did not consider it unusual. He did not even think it had anything to do with race. It was just the way things were. It was very honest of Carter to tell that story and some others, which show him in an unflattering light. It was as if he was saying, when I talk of racism, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about me, I'm talking about us. Racism is just picked up from the atmosphere. That was the lesson. Carter was infected by it and was determined to break free of it. Ah, but I promised to tell you about the time we met Jimmy Carter. We were in Mobile to search out some of Jane's family roots when she suddenly realized that Andersonville, the horrendous Civil War POW camp where we were going, was close to Plains, where Jimmy and Rosalind lived. Surprisingly, after the presidency, they lived in the same modest house where they had lived before, and Carter attended the same church he had always attended. Well, he left his original church when they refused to admit a black member, but he and his minister and some deacons formed a new church that became his home. Carter was himself a deacon in the church, and he continued to teach Sunday school when he was in town. When we learned that he would be teaching that week, we got tickets and showed up. He would meet with people before services, and we were put in a modest overflow room. One funny thing happened as we were waiting. There were three little Korean boys there with their families. There were maybe eight or ten. They were speaking English. One said, we're from North Korea. Another responded, that his family were from South Korea. The third boy said, we are from Middle Korea. When the other two boys protested that there's no such place as Middle Korea, he said they were in the northern part of South Korea, which is Middle Korea. The boys treated that as useful information, but Jane and I got a chuckle out of that exchange. There were probably 30 people in that room. At a certain point, Carter walked in. He was dressed semi-casually, as Southern people tend to do. He said a few words and asked if anybody had a question. One little girl asked if he liked being president. 
He said he liked being president, but did not like campaigning. He would love to have won re-election, but did not really like the campaign part. He was very personable. Finally, we in the overflow room were escorted into the sanctuary. There were a few hundred people there. Carter talked to us about a person who had died the previous week, and Carter had delivered his eulogy. The deceased man had been the volunteer from the congregation who recorded these sessions. Carter said he had a very he, Carter said he had very high expectations of me and always helped my feet to the fire. He wanted me to take positions and issue statements that were stronger than I wanted to issue. These actions seemed to me to be a bit arrogant to be bossing about a president. But Carter treated him as integrity personified, a man of firm principles trying to make a difference. Carter noted the number of people present, perhaps 200, and told us that most of us were guests. He asked every member of the church to stand up. There were perhaps 15 or 20. He said this was not a big church. He did not ask for money, although we left a donation, but said he was a carpenter and would make some furniture once a year. He would put his signature on it. Perhaps someday someone would be willing to pay generously for those pieces, and that would keep the congregation afloat. There was an exhibit in the hallway showing Carter making some pieces. When it got time for the Sunday school lesson, the passage was on a gospel story about a woman who had uncontrolled bleeding for 18 years. Jesus touched her and she was healed. We were asked to discuss the text. What was the lesson we were supposed to get out of this? This was very typical of a Southern Baptist Sunday School format. People made comments from the floor, and Carter affirmed each comment, pushing the discussion forward. He mentioned that she had probably not been touched during that time, and this would have created a grievous loneliness in her life. Somehow he turned this distant text into something that we could understand. When the service was over, Carter surprised us. He said that he was willing to have photos with people if they wished. Most people were in groups, so they had group photos. But Jane and I were alone, so we got a photo with Jimmy and Rosalind, just the four of us. It's a wonderful photo. As we left, Rosalind said, y'all come back and see us again. Somehow, we had touched greatness. Before we finish, I want to share Jane's reaction to Carter. A couple of years ago, she listened to an audiobook by Carter written when he turned 90. She spent quite a bit of time discussing this book with me. These are her reflections, which she posted on Facebook. Well, let her tell you herself. Recently, I have been listening to Jimmy Carter's memoir, A Full Life, written as he turned 90 and read aloud by President Carter. I have been, been struck by many of his admirable qualities. First, from an early age, he desired to be useful. He did everything he could around the farm, including holding pieces of metal on the forge so his father could make and repair tools. As he grew in size and skill, he learned that he could make and repair most anything around the farm. Everyone else was there in the shop too, fashioning wheels and rims, making handles, sharpening blades, building and repairing farm buildings, and simple furniture. When he entered the Naval Academy, he put up with the hazing and other difficulties he encountered, because that was the only way he could progress through the school at that time. He seems to have valued strength and achievements because of some inner need to compete with himself, not others. He moved 
through naval assignments from maintenance officer on an old battleship, barely able to stay afloat, to a more advanced battleship, and then to submarines, and finally, a nuclear submarine. Each change brought new opportunities to learn, and all the travel exposed him to a sense of interest in other people and places. His return to Georgia put him back into farming, and when his father died, he had to learn all the aspects of the peanut business, buying and selling, borrowing and lending, soil analysis and amending. He learned to judge people, to help when he could, and he joined organizations both to further his own interests and to develop his own community and the state. Politics became a natural outgrowth of this desire for improving his own life and that of his people. His life up until then had shown him that he could succeed in what he did, and he was a fixer, that he was a good judge of people. With his own family and a few friends, he shook hands and handed out literature and traveled around the state, staying with people and sleeping in cars and talking to anyone who would listen, especially the newspaper and radio reporters. We see him as a president, constantly learning, reading about 300 pages a day of briefing documents, meeting daily with his security team, studying each country he visited, and studying everything about diplomats and heads of state before every summit. He had goals and set out to achieve them, with a plan for each one and a team that he felt could help meet those goals. He never stopped believing that with hard work and the right tools, he could make things turn out right. He knew who he needed to convince in order to gain the votes he needed, and he knew what would work with each individual. As one example, he read Senator Hayakawa's book on linguistics and invited him to the White House to discuss it, and he got the majority he needed for the Panama Treaty. I've always admired President Carter, and this admiration has grown through his post-presidency years. I'm not sure yet what makes him tick, but it is enjoyable to see some of the process. That was Jane speaking. She's really insightful. Well, I have one last anecdote before we finish. When Carter learned back in 2015 that he had a brain tumor reported to be terminal, many of us were distressed. We did not want to give him up. I knew he would receive thousands of letters, few of which he would ever read, but I wanted to be one of those who wrote, so I did. Here's the handwritten note I sent. It has always seemed to me that God should work out an arrangement whereby we could give a day of our lives to someone that we think would use that day to produce more good than we would. This would have to be limited to a one-day donation. To prevent coercion, it would have to be done anonymously. If you're asked to do this, or if someone suggests you do it, you would be prohibited from donating. Anyone soliciting bonus days would be automatically excluded from receiving such gifts. God would also have to make it clear that donors do not get extra credit for this gift. You're doing it for other people, not for your own benefit. To separate emotional entanglement from your decision, you could not make this donation to a friend or a relative. It would have to be a public servant of some kind. Each individual would be limited to five donations in their lifetime. This would prevent overly generous people from harming themselves. Such a donation would not shorten your own life significantly, but if enough people made a similar donation to a worthy person, 
It could produce significant benefit for the recipient and for society as a whole. A person doing this would feel a great sense of joy that they had done something very good and very generous and very unselfish. I never got an answer, but maybe God read that letter and decided to give Jimmy an extra seven and a half years of life. If so, I'm very happy that he did. And if so, it only cost me one day. Thanks for listening.